Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. isn't the only country looking to deport people. We'll learn about Israel's decision to deport Eritreans and Sudanese. In 1983, Nigeria ordered over a million West African immigrants to leave. We'll hear from one of them. And the real Hawaii can't be found in a typical guidebook. I'll talk with the author of a new decolonial guidebook to Hawaii. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. isn't the only country deporting immigrants and asylum seekers. Israel recently gave almost 40,000 African immigrants a choice, a plane ticket and several thousand dollars, or prison. Michael Schaefer Omerman is the editor-in-chief of Plus 972. It's an Israeli-Palestinian blog-based web magazine, and we're going to talk with him about what's been happening with these people. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Happy to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about these African immigrants and where they came from, how they got there, what they've been doing? Sure. So starting in about 2006, 2007, first Darfurian and then also some Eritrean asylum seekers started coming across the southern border from Egypt, where uh, many had come from, from their countries that they had been fleeing, but where conditions weren't so great. There was uh, specifically a, a very violent incident outside the UN refugee agency in Cairo, and after that, the flow of refugees started moving north, uh, using Bedouin smugglers across the, the Sinai Desert. There have been a lot of reports of torture camps, especially many of the Eritrean asylum seekers suffered in on the way to Israel. And in the beginning, when the numbers were small, Israel was much more receptive to, to taking them in. Uh, it didn't have so much of a cost, but the numbers continued to grow to, I think it was 50 or 60,000 at its peak. And now it's down to 37 or 38,000. And today, the vast majority of them are both Eritrean and Sudanese. And Israel built a fence to stop the immigration flow, right? Right. So the flow of new asylum seekers coming across the border is almost zero. It's certainly been in the single digits for several years now. And did they settle in a particular place and start doing particular jobs? It's been, you know, for some of them, I imagine, 10 years. Well, in the beginning, the Israeli army who patrols the southern border brought them to prison processing centers and then put them on buses to an area in South Tel Aviv. It's been uh, an underprivileged area of the city to begin with. And when you, they basically dumped you know, tens of thousands of people who, who are coming without really any resources and jobs, and it didn't make things conditions any better. So there's actually a, one of the strongest arguments that the government and, and a lot of the right-wing political movements are making against the asylum seeker community is that the, the deputy foreign minister today said that they're terrorizing the residents of, of South Philippines. And there's never been any, any data presented to show that the asylum seeker community is more responsible for crime than the general population. But that is, it is a claim that you hear fairly often and, and that they're being concentrated in certain areas. 
And I noted that the uh, public security minister in Israel commented on Twitter and called the people infiltrators, and this has become kind of a common reference? So it's actually a legal mechanism in addition to a, a rhetorical tool to make them sound threatening. But what they did is that, as opposed to all other asylum seekers who arrive in Israel on airplanes and then claim asylum once they arrive, the African, and I have to say black refugees, because that is significant here when we talk about the, the racism that they face, because they cross the border without a visa, without coming in in a, a regularized mode of international transportation, they're classified as infiltrators, which was a category created to describe Palestinian fighters that crossed the border in the early years of the state, um, when there were still cross-border clashes all the time. So it really puts them in this category of, of threatening threatening people. It's, you know, they're not referred to as refugees. They're not referred to as asylum seekers. Sometimes they're, they're referred to as, as illegal work migrants. But in Hebrew, it's almost always infiltrators. And it's, it's quite clearly deliberate as an attempt to make them feel and sound threatening. And people who can't be allowed to stay, you know, a migrant and a refugee can be assimilated. There are ways of integrating migrants and refugees into society, not only in Israel, but around the world. You know, there are, I think, somewhere around 100,000 foreign workers in Israel that the government allows to come in, and tens of thousands of them overstay their visas. They're not referred to as, as infiltrators. They're referred to as foreign workers, which is not a threatening term. I'm talking with Michael Schaefer-Omerman. He's editor-in-chief of 972, and we're talking about the almost 40,000 African migrants who are in Israel, and they're going to get a plane ticket out and several thousand dollars, or they're going to go to prison. And it's not even entirely clear where they're getting a plane ticket to. Everyone says it's Rwanda or Uganda, the Ugandan administrators say that it's not Uganda, and the the deal with Rwanda doesn't even seem above board. What's going on here? This is a deal that Israel has been offering people for a while. And just to back up a, a second, the reason that the, the asylum seekers that remaining in Israel are Eritrean and Sudanese because those are two countries that Israel can't deport people to. There was a sizable Ivorian population in Israel. There was a sizable South Sudanese population in Israel. The government was able to deport them eventually, but for various reasons, mostly concerning their safety. They can't be deported to Eritrea and Sudan. The program right now, which, you know, is being called anything from deportation to voluntary repatriation, and it's not really a choice, right? Because indefinite imprisonment versus being sent somewhere else, most people wouldn't consider that a voluntary situation. With regards to where they're going, we're actually about to, to publish a report from Rwanda and Uganda where we went to go talk to the asylum seekers that have taken this deal in the past. And they, you know, as you said, the Rwandan authorities don't recognize this deal that Israel calls secret arrangement. And they're brought off the planes. They don't receive any status. Many of them say that they're either encouraged or forced to, to cross the border into Uganda, where they also don't have much status. Many of them have continued their journey after being sent to these countries across the Mediterranean. And, of course, we know the fate of so many people to try and make that journey to get to Europe. So it's, it's not exactly a direct deportation because there is a choice to go to prison indefinitely, but that's, that's not really very much of a choice. So in the government in Rwanda gets a certain amount of money out of this for every person they take. They get, well, I was reading, $6,000 or something, but nobody... It's been reported that they're getting $5,000 from the Israeli government, in addition to the $3,500 that 
incentives that the Israeli authorities are giving the asylum seekers themselves, but nobody's been able to confirm the details of the deal itself, and the Israeli Supreme Court has actually upheld the government's ability to not disclose the details of the agreement, um, really? saying that it's state secret. Is there any way that these people can get legitimate asylum status in Israel right now? So, as of last week, there's one Sudanese asylum seeker whose refugee claim was recognized, and 11 Eritreans out of tens of thousands. These are people who, in other countries, have recognition rates for Sudanese in the 50s and 60%, and for Eritreans, 80 to 90% recognition rates of their, of their refugee claims. In Israel, we're talking less than 1%. So it's, it's almost impossible to have a, a refugee claim accepted in the Israeli system. And part of that is because the country doesn't really have a normalized immigration policy. The primary mechanism for immigration to Israel is, is for Jews around the world who want to move here. And, you know, there are a few others for, for spouses and family members. But because there really is no refugee regime, there's no asylum policy, um, it's all been built over the past few years. And unfortunately, it seems it was built in a way to prevent most of the people claiming asylum from actually receiving it. Well, what's been the reaction in the public about this? Because uh, obviously Israel was founded as a home for persecuted people, and there are probably many uh, people who are thinking, well, this does not seem like the, the goal here is to, to you know, turn away legitimate refugees. You know, there's been a pretty significant protest movement over the past month or two as uh, the deportation plan approaches. Polls that were released recently show that the majority of Israelis still support the, the deportation plan. And a large part of that, I would argue, is a result of what we talked about before, how the government and political actors have labeled these people infiltrators and not refugees and not migrants and not, not people who could have individual and legitimate fears that, that in most other countries would result in them receiving refugee status. For many years, Israel refused to even examine the individual claims of asylum seekers from, from Eritrea and Sudan because it said we're not going to deport them anyway. And now that there's a plan to deport them, they're beginning to examine the claims. But the recognition rate is so low that it, it really does not seem like a functioning system. I'm talking with Michael Schaefer-Omerman, and we're discussing the almost 40,000 African migrants who are in Israel, and they're going to get a plane ticket out and several thousand dollars, or they're going to go to prison. How does Israel defend itself in international law on asylum claims? If it's not allowing any that seem legitimate, how does that wash? Well, the short answer is it doesn't have to. There is nobody who goes around the world enforcing the, the Refugee Convention, um, which Israel, by the way, was very involved in drafting, and it was one of the first countries to find and, and institute it. But the United Nations, the High Commissioner for Refugees, they encourage countries to comply with the conventions and to do things according to, to international standards, but there is no enforcement mechanism. Immigration is the sovereign domain of, of a state, of a government, and in the past, we, we actually have seen international pressure specifically from the Obama administration. I've been, been told by their various sources that, that it's actually one of the issues where the Obama administration was able to influence Israeli policy over the past few years. And it seems that it's not a priority of the Trump administration. And I don't know if there's direct correlation between the, the change of the administration and the change in, in Israel's behavior, but, but the timeline does, does match up. 
Everybody on the planet seems to be railing against refugees and taking a harsh stand on them and deporting them at a pretty alarming rate. And it seems to be good politics for these people. All these people seem to get more popular. And here we've got the Netanyahu administration has recently got some corruption issues. How is the positioning on this issue? Do you think it has anything to do with other things? It's certainly connected to the rising nationalist movements throughout the world, and especially in formerly ethnic nation states. You see it in a lot of European countries where new populations look very different than the sort of veteran population. Um, countries that, that aren't as diverse as the UK or the US. And Israel, despite its own diversity, it is an ethno-religious nation state, right? It defines itself as the Jewish homeland. And so it's an issue where xenophobia can be very easily leveraged in a populist way. And whether it's the current deportation moves or tied to the Netanyahu's corruption scandals, which seem to be getting worse by the day, I'm not so sure. This is a direction that the government has used specifically among a, a right-wing and nationalist base for, for many years now. Seven or eight years ago, we had people who are now senior ministers in the government calling Sudanese migrants the cancer in the body of Israel. Really unthinkable rhetoric, and, and that only entered the mainstream even more as time went on. So I would definitely draw a connection to the, to the rising nationalist and often xenophobic movements that we're seeing rising in a lot of countries around the world right now. It's something that's been taking place here for a long time. Is there any Hail Mary pass that these Sudanese or Eritreans can hope on? I was reading that Canada in 2016 and 17 took 1,800 Eritrean refugees in from Israel and these were privately sponsored people, and there's some encouragement from Jewish people in Canada to do more. Is that any kind of solution? I mean, 40,000 people is a lot, but is there any dissemination of these people that would at least keep them out of prison or being shuffled around in Rwanda? I would imagine many, many people would hope to get some sort of resettlement in Canada or in another Western country. The problem is that for mass resettlement, it's kind of hard for countries like Canada or the United States or other countries that do take in refugees and have established mechanisms and systems for doing so to agree to take in so many tens of thousands from a country that, at least economically speaking, is a first world country. They ask the Israeli government, why can't you handle 40,000 when we're taking in 100,000 or much, much larger numbers? And the truth of the matter is that there really is no reason why Israel can't, couldn't handle or, or absorb um, this number of people, especially when there's there's no more or, or new migrants and asylum seekers entering the country anymore. We're talking about a static population. Um, and yet it's something that the government just seems not to want to do. Do you have any gut reaction how this story ends? I've noticed that some of the protesters say, well, if we really focus on Rwanda and make it unacceptable for Rwanda to take them, then then Israel will have to do so. There, is there an angle that gets played here that gets these people some help? Sure. A lot of the protests are targeting Rwanda and Uganda and trying to shame those governments out of the agreements that may or may not exist or may exist on some level. I, I, I worry about it. I think the best hope for most of them is, is resettlement in other countries. I don't think that Israel will be able to deport all of them. I also, you know, the prison service here has said to the government, we don't have enough room to house 40,000 people if they, if they all refuse to go. Many are saying they will refuse. 
And I also don't see a situation where the government is forcefully putting people on planes. I, I don't think we've seen the last act here. Oftentimes, and especially when it comes to, to refugee policy, over the past decade, the Israeli government has proposed a very extreme measure, and then it's been blocked by the court. So they come back with something slightly less extreme. You know, they're, they're constantly shifting the, the goalposts as they go, never quite accomplishing the, the big dramatic move that they, that they announced, but, but still moving in the direction. And we've seen that by the reduction in the population of asylum seekers by, by tens of thousands already. Michael Shaver Omerman is editor-in-chief of Plus 972, an Israeli-Palestinian blog-based web magazine. Thanks for joining us and talking about African refugees in Israel. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about the time Nigeria kicked a million West Africans out. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we discussed Israel's decision to deport tens of thousands of African migrants. But in 1983, on short notice, another country ordered over a million of its migrants to leave within weeks. For the BBC program Witness, Alex Last spoke to someone who was forced to leave. It's late January 1983, and in Nigeria, the president, Shehu Shagari, has suddenly announced that all foreigners without the right paperwork have just weeks to leave the country. Almost all are West African, the majority are Ghanaian. If they don't leave, they should be arrested and tried and sent back to their homes. Illegal immigrants, in fact, under normal circumstances, should not be given any notice whatsoever. If you break a law, then you have to pay for it. In Lagos, a Ghanaian, Charles Ekowotu, is working as an assistant sales manager for a chemical firm, but technically he is an illegal immigrant. Someone told me there was a deadline that minister will hand over every power to every civilian, that every civilian can do anything to any alien in the country. And it was that threat, any, any Nigerian citizan can take action against... Oh, yes, when the deadline expires, you will be given the power to every Nigerian, every citizen. You have nowhere to hide in Nigeria, because wherever you are staying, you are staying with a Nigerian. So that made everyone scared. Across Nigeria, up to two million migrants heeded the warnings. They packed what they could into trucks, cars, pickups and taxis and tried to get out of the country. 
The main route home to Ghana was west through the tiny neighbouring states of Benin and Togo. Charles and his friends hired a car and headed to the border. It was only when they left Lagos they realised the scale of the exodus. So when we've hit the main road, there we could see the serious centre of the old thing. Trucks loaded with items and people, thousands of thousands of vehicles. And the people, you know, is uncountable. Thousands and thousands of people, millions. A BBC correspondent followed the refugees. With more than two million illegal immigrants ordered to get out of Nigeria, the resulting chaos is staggering. Hundreds of thousands have now massed at Nigeria's frontier with the tiny West African state of Benin. When we were about to reach Benin, that's the worst situation. I could say about two kilometers to the border. People have been camping here, both sides of the street or the road. Some having no water, some are in good mood, others are even... And some have stayed there so long that they have run out of money. Many families are stranded. Overladen lorries, cars or taxis have brought them this far. But now they camp out in the hope of being able to complete their journeys home. Among the exiles are at least a million Ghanaians. The majority of the Ghanaian migrants were drawn to Nigeria during the oil boom of the 70s. But by 1983, the Nigerian economy was suffering, and it was an election year. Nigerian politicians hoped the expulsion would prove popular. Those with longer memories remembered that Ghana had expelled Nigerian migrants in 1969. But the scale this time was unprecedented. Because of the traffic, the cars are piled up bumper to bumper. During the night... People have generators and all these things, and uh, there's music. and So people set up set up music and bars by the camps. side of the road? Yeah, yeah. That, as at that, uh, you know, there's Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, and movement of jazz people. <laughs> Once in Benin, there were not many ways out. Those who've managed to reach Benin are besieging the main port at Cotonou in the hope of catching a boat to Ghana. The queue is several miles long. I met a friend, about to buy a ship, and there was this stampede and he fell. So he had a fracture, which was very serious one. The main problem was that following an attempted coup the previous year, Ghana's leader, Jerry Rawlings, had closed the main land crossing with Togo. And so, to avoid being host to a sudden influx of over a million migrants, Togo, in turn, shut its border with Benin. That left Ghanaian refugees stuck again. Tens of thousands of refugees, mostly Ghanaians, amassed here at the border of the two tiny West African states of Benin and Togo. The road home to Ghana has come to a standstill, hopelessly clogged with vehicles and a seething mass of refugees, while the frontier remains temporarily closed. Finally, Ghana relented and opened its border. Togo followed suit. Within minutes of the frontier reopening, there was chaos. 
Many families had been waiting 10 days to walk the 50 yards or so from Benin into Togo. When they reached the borders, all our people got down. So we'll be walking through. But there's nothing like they'll be checking your passport or anything of that sort. Some of other people are finding it very difficult because they have a lot of, a lot of personal belongings. Were you angry at your treatment that this had all happened? Or were you frustrated? Uh, frustration setting, but whom will you be angry with? It's a general thing. I know a lot of people blame the then government that uh, even when your people have been repatriating, you still close the border. And some of them have been there for two months and then and over. And what, what, what sort of uh, leadership is that? When we reached Ghana, I could remember we have to go and look for coconut because that is only available food you could find at the border towns. You know, at the border towns, too, things are very expensive. And in the haste to get home, some returning refugees were knocked off the back of packed lorries. We have these overhead bridges. You could see on top of the bridges some blood have scattered all over. Meaning when they are coming during the night, articulated trucks, the inner part of it has been filled with personal belongings. So they were sitting at the edges of the trucks, and some of them would be hitting their head against the overhead bridges, which means there are a lot of people who die on even on their road to Ghana. There had been real fears that Ghana, whose population was then around 12 million, could not cope with such an influx Its economy was already in crisis. There were shortages, there were bushfires and drought, and yet, across the country, the refugees were absorbed by their communities. Charles returned to his father's village. Oh, it was a very big welcome. And they were relieved. Yeah, quite relieved. And did you ever go back to Nigeria? No, 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 no. When I crossed Togo border, I swear to myself, I won't get back to Even if I have to travel, it won't be in Nigeria. We never returned to Nigeria. But within the year, tens of thousands had returned to Nigeria, and there was another, much smaller round of expulsions two years later. But relations between the two countries did finally improve. Today, there remains a small, everyday reminder of the exodus. Ghana must go is the name given to the huge, cheap, checkered hold-all bags used by Ghanaian refugees 30 years ago, which are still very popular today. That's all for this edition of Witness With Me, Alex Last. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for our World History Minute with historian John Schmidt. John's the author of On This Day in Chicago History, but he works a global beat for us. And today we are going to turn the pages back to something I'm sure a lot of people remember, the People Power Revolution in the Philippines. Yeah, a little over 30 years ago, February 22, 1986. 
Well, we go back to Ferdinand Marcos. He was elected the president of the Philippines in 1965. He was reelected four years later. And during his second term, he was faced with charges of corruption, protests from the left, and there was a Muslim separatist movement. So in 1972, he declared martial law and he began to rule as a dictator. Now, it was the era of the Cold War. And because Marcos was a staunch anti-communist, he was supported by the U.S. through five successive presidents. Both Democrats and Republicans supported him. Most of the opposition to Marcos gravitated around Senator Nuno Aquino. And Aquino was thrown into prison, but he was later allowed to go into exile in the United States. Well, in 1983, Aquino announced that he was going to return to the Philippines. But when he stepped off the plane at the airport, he was shot. Well, the murder of Aquino in these circumstances, they outraged the world. And opposition to Marcos solidified uh, Kino's widow, Corazon, emerges the face of the opposition. Until her husband's murder, uh, she never pursued a political career. Meanwhile, the economy of the Philippines was deteriorating. Under pressure from the United States, Marcus scheduled a new presidential election for February 7th, 1986. Corazon Aquino ran against him, and results were in Marcos was declared a winner by 53 to 47%, but immediately there were allegations of fraud. An independent watchdog group claimed that Aquino had really won by 42 to 48%. The Philippine Catholic Church condemned the election, so the U.S. Senate and Aquino supporters now began a campaign of civil disobedience. On February 22, 1986, a group of Army officers tried to stage a coup against Marcos. The coup was put down. But now other military leaders began to join the opposition. And the Catholic Cardinal went on the radio. He declared his support for the opposition. And the next day, hundreds of thousands of these anti-Marcos protesters massed in the capital city. And the demonstrations carried over in the third day. So now the military was deserting Marcos. And he realized he couldn't put down the revolution by force. And at this time, the United States offered to give him and his family sanctuary if he just leave. So on February 25th, Marcus went in exile, and this so-called people power revolution had succeeded. Marcus was overthrown. Corazon Aquino was sworn in as new president of the Philippines. And uh, later that year, she was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The People Power Revolution, February 22nd, 1986. It's amazing how fast that all went from February 7th all the way to February 25th. A lot happened in a hurry. And it's marvelous. There wasn't a lot of bloodshed either, although there was some, obviously, but a story with a happy ending for once. John Schmidt, our World History Minute, February 22nd, 1986, the People Power Revolution in the Philippines. Coming up after the break, tourism and military bases go hand-in-hand in in the Philippines and Hawaii. I'll talk with a researcher about U.S. imperialism in the Pacific. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. What's the real Hawaii? If you visit as a typical tourist, you're likely to miss it. 
Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez is working on a decolonial guidebook to Hawaii. She's an associate professor of American studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and she's been in Chicago talking at Northwestern University. Nice to see you. Aloha. Aloha. I don't get to say that very often. No. I got to admit, um, Hawaii is such an interesting place, and I don't think a lot of uh, people here in the mainland 48 uh, seem to think about it in a colonial manner. They usually just think about it as a great place to go. Um, or a know, target for nuclear weapons. Or, or a target for nuclear sure. weapons. There's a, there's a military yeah. base, Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. all that. And I don't think a lot of people really meet real Hawaiians. What is the real Hawaii that you want people to know about? Well, a lot of it has to do with um, a long history, right? Um, a long history that's rooted in overthrow of a sovereign kingdom. So this project that my co-editor and I are working on, my co-editor is at the University of Utah. She was formerly at Hawaii. Her name is Hokulani Aikau. Um, what we wanted to do was to 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 take the guidebook as a form, um, the guidebook as a as a kind of genre that, that has come to define Hawaii, particularly since the 1960s and the advent of mass tourism. And we wanted to kind of mess with it a bit. The term we used was to pervert it as a genre, <laughs> and and to take that genre and to use it to shed light on different kinds of efforts and place-based efforts that not just Native Hawaiians, but also other local folks who have a deep roots and deep commitment to Hawaii have in trying to reconnect to the land, reconnect to the culture. If I were to follow the decolonial guidebook to Hawaii and open it up and get off the plane, where would I go? It doesn't work so neatly as that, right? (laughs) So it doesn't give you... um, easy itineraries, or although there are a few tours that it actually specifically outlines. The Detours book was inspired by two activists who were active in the demilitarization movement in Hawaii in the 1980s and 1990s and continue to offer this particular tour today. So we borrowed the title of the book from them. They offer a demilitarization tour, so they shortened it to Detour. And Oahu, for instance, is 20 plus percent occupied by the U.S. military. And so what they've done as a sort of activist project, as an educational project, is they've created a tour um, that's built around um, the different ways in which the U.S. military has occupied Hawaii. So they start at Iolani Palace, where the overthrow of the kingdom happened. They go to Pearl Harbor, where they retell the story of Pu'aloa, which is the original name of the place, right, instead of Pearl Harbor. And it's a place that has been incredibly polluted by U.S. military, and they've basically retaken that land and replanted things like lo'ikalo, taro, native plants, reintroducing different kinds of groups to what it means to, to work the land in traditional ways. You know, when I went to Hawaii, I saw this place that looked like a Polynesian island that had the U.S. jammed into it. Sure. And that's, uh, that was the feeling I got from it. I felt sad about that. <laughs> it didn't, it yeah. didn't, you know, I, I just felt like I, I was in a, I was not in a... a so it's a very, very different kind of um, reality that they encounter. Um, they encounter a fantasy in essence, that's been created for them, right? Um, the hula girls, the the sort of the luau feast, uh, the friendly native, right? Um, 
but they they never actually venture beyond those particular neighborhoods that cater to them. There's been a revival of the Hawaiian language recently. Sure. Uh, people are teaching it in colleges, and is this sparking some kind of revival? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not just a revival of the Hawaiian language, um, but different kinds of traditional cultural practices. Um, hula, learning how to work the land um, in traditional ways, traditional Hawaiian healing practices. It's pretty exciting. I I get to work with a lot of students at the university who are involved in in different kinds of practices around this, so it's it's exciting to see. I had a Hawaiian musician on the show not too long ago, and uh, he was doing some hula work, and and I said, you mean hula like uh, we think about hula when we're in Chicago? And he goes, no, it's the total opposite of that. Yeah. That it's that's something we wouldn't even recognize, really. Yeah. I actually just started taking hula. I've been doing it for a year. It's it's a whole body, whole mind kind of education about the place, actually. So it's rooted in place, like a lot of Hawaiian practices are. I imagine when you embark on a project like a decolonial guidebook to Hawaii, you think about um, ethical tourism, and there's lots of efforts at ethical tourism. Uh, is there such a thing, do you think? I do think that there is such a thing, and that's the reason we we created this guidebook, was to give people a way to encounter Hawaii differently than how the guidebook frames Hawaii. So often the typical guidebook promises that that fantasy of absolute access, the friendly native, you know, here is Hawaii for you, come take it, consume it, you've paid for it, right? What we're trying to do in Detours is is create a different way to approach Hawaii, a different way to understand the different places in Hawaii, that people have relationships to these places. And so it is built around a notion of reciprocity, which is a deep part of the culture. Um, this, this, not, this knowledge that if you are invited to a place, there is an expectation for you to give back from anywhere from actually doing some work to promote something good in that place or to give back in the sense of giving it some time and space in your vacation to kind of understand something more deeply, um, understand the history more deeply. I don't necessarily feel like we need to go to places and feel a lot of guilt in order to do ethical tourism correctly. I think that travel opens up a lot of opportunities for people and people who are privileged to have that kind of mobility puts a certain kind of responsibility to them. And that that's kind of what we are hoping to do with with a detours guidebook. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald speaking with Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez, and we're talking about her decolonial guidebook to Hawaii. She's previously the author of Securing Paradise, Tourism, and Militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines. In the previous book, you connected the Philippines to this. Sure. And you are from a Philippine background. Sure. This was a, this was another island that the U.S. took over with military and heavy colonial aspirations. And uh, why do tourism and militarism have this thing that uh, is connected? Well, in Hawaii and the Philippines, I feel like they work together to create a sense of security 
and a sense of rightness about what's actually a takeover of sovereignty. In that book, I looked at different sites in the Philippines and in Hawaii. Um, the, probably the easiest that come to mind are Pearl Harbor or Corregidor, right? These are sort of military sites, historical military sites that have been turned into tourist sites as well. And so I was really interested in the sort of um, intersection of the ways that those two sets of logics worked. How do people come to a military site and feel safe and secure and how they feel as tourists, right, um, able to travel in those places and then able to be grateful to a military that has secured these tropics for them. So that was part of what sort of drew me into that project. I took the tour at Pearl Harbor, and it was uh, interesting. It seemed like, (laughs) you know. Sure. The missiles kind of got to me. Uh, There was a big layout of nuclear development of missiles uh, Mm -hmm. on the site um, that I didn't expect. And that seemed to be validating something, validating our ambitions in Asia or, or, you know, we got back at Japan. You know, it was kind of a... Another uncomfortable message for me. Yeah. I didn't. I think it validates a particular story of the United States and Hawaii, right? Um, it validates a particular story of sacrifice, of suffering. It's almost like you've bought your your right to be in this place through that sacrifice of of being attacked of blood. Then there is also the sort of display, as you've mentioned, of of the various hardware of of militarization from. Um, from the missiles to the USS Bofin, which is a submarine, to um, the massive ships that are actually on active duty, right? Um, And there is a way that that becomes almost a tourist site, right? There's a pleasure to seeing those things when you're touring a historical site as well. So there's there's all kinds of layers of of sacrifice. Um, most of the f- people who go there are there to see the USS Arizona and the sort of downed ship. That, you know, they taken out by Navy launch to the memorial. But like you said, there's those layers of the buried dead in the USS Arizona, the live ships that are you know you see around you. You can go inside the USS Bofin and sort of feel very. Um, enclosed and sort of come to understand perhaps or identify with the men who were in those ships during World War II or in other kinds of military maneuvers. And so there's a call for you as a tourist to then identify with the kind of safety that is guaranteed your body as it moves through those spaces. I'm talking with Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez, and she's working on a decolonial guidebook to Hawaii. She's also written Securing Paradise, Tourism, Militarism, and uh, in Hawaii and the Philippines. Uh, I also couldn't help but notice your, your related project now is you're looking into the life story of Isabel Rosario Cooper, who um, is kind of like an intersection of the, the personal intersection of all the things we're talking about uh, um, colonialism, militarism. Um, she was known as the mistress of Douglas MacArthur. He brought her to this country and uh, gave her a plane ticket back to the Philippines, which she didn't use. It wasn't a plane ticket. It was a boat ticket. A boat ticket. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the 1930s. Oh, yeah. So, Could you tell us something about this woman, Isabel uh, Rosario Cooper? Isabel Rosario Cooper was actually the daughter of um, a U.S. soldier who was stationed in the Philippines during the Philippine-American War. So, you know, she comes from a sort of line of military intimacies with colonized people, 
right? And she was actually quite well-known and well-accomplished in her own right. She was um, a vaudeville star in the Philippines uh, in the 1920s, and she was actually one of the first big cinema stars as well. So she was infamous for having um, the first on-screen kiss in, in Philippine cinema. And, you know, I'm sure that and her vaudeville fame brought her to MacArthur's attention when he was stationed there after his pretty much right after his his first divorce, his only divorce, the end of his first marriage. Is it true that she was 16 when he first took up with her? No. Uh, well, that's part of, of course, the scandal. So that's part of the research I've done. She lies about her age a lot. She actually dies in Hollywood in 1960. As she got older in Hollywood, she started to lie about her age. I estimate she was more like 21 when they met. So, But a lot of the sort of scandal sheets peg her at 16. <laughs> because it's much more scandalous. She ultimately uh, kills herself in, in 1960, mm-hmm. and she's in her 40s then? She's closer to 50. What happened? I mean, was she, um, she was kind of put in a place where she couldn't succeed in some way. Well, I would say she was actually succeeding. A lot of the people who have written about her— and, there's not a lot, but the way she's written about sort of frame that suicide as a sort of unrequited love. That's like 25 years after she and MacArthur broke up. She has two husbands after him. You know, she has a career as an extra in Hollywood. So there's a lot of other reasons that could exist other than sort of the fantasy of the exotic woman pining away for her her soldier boy lover, right? So I'm trying to write a different story where I'm trying to understand the way that she moves through different spaces from Manila to Washington to, to L.A. Like, what does a woman, a very worldly woman, do in these sort of circuits of empire? What kind of work is she doing in terms of the work of, of love, of, of sex, of, of um, intimacy? Right, as part of what creates the glue of of empire, we we often hear about the work that soldiers do, but what are what's what kind of labor and what kind of everyday reality did a lot of the women um, who circulated in these same places? What what do they do? The, you know, when we've got this personal example of uh, empire and what it what it does to people, is this um. Is this a story of resilience or is this uh, a story of uh, tragedy? I think it's both. Um, A lot of the times, you know, um, the most compelling stories are often the ones of heroism, right? Where there's an an easy way to track a, a good choice that somebody makes. I was interested in her story because... She clearly just made a lot of choices for survival and for self-interest, right? So it's a very different kind of story than um, a lot of sort of biographical arcs that you might see. Um, It's really just a woman, a young girl, uh, in some instances, trying to figure out her way in a in a rapidly changing world, right? And she's she's not given a whole lot of choices, and she's working with the materials that she has. Um, That's her own talent. That's her relationships with men. So it's kind of a, a... It's more like a real story than... It's a, a real story. <laughs> than, than one yeah. of these tales we tell ourselves to make her. Our, yeah, it's definitely... And so that's what was interesting to me, was like, how do you tell a story of somebody surviving an empire and not necessarily have it 
have this heroic arc because for so many people, that is not the case, right? Her own mother had the same arc. So there's sort of these repetitions and patterns. Um, and so I was interested in finding somebody who has this sort of infamous moment, but to also notice that that's only just one moment in, in a larger pattern in her life of making do, creating um, relationships in order to survive, that kind of thing. Well, it sounds like you're mining a rich vein in your work. I am. It's fun. It's actually a lot of fun. And I hope people look for the book on Isabel Rosario Cooper that you are going to write in the future and uh, the book uh, Securing Paradise, Tourism, Militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines has been out there for a while. And your decolonial guidebook to Hawaii is out too. Not yet? That Not yet. Matter. We're actually in talks with the press right now. So so people will... So in a year, maybe. By the time people have planned their trips, people will be exactly. ready for the decolonial guidebook mm-hmm. to Hawaii. Thanks a lot for joining us, Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez uh, from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Great to meet you. Thank you so much. If you're interested in seeing Bernadette V. Cunha Gonzalez, she speaks tonight at 5 p.m. at Northwestern University, and she'll workshop the detours, uh, the colonial guide to decolonial guide to Hawaii with students and members of the public at the Asian American Studies Department in Crow Hall, 1860 Campus Drive in Evanston. And if you know anybody in Champaign-Urbana, she's going to discuss U.S. colonialism in the Pacific there on Thursday at 5.30 at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. That's Bernadette Vicuña Gonzalez. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll discuss Zimbabwe without Robert Mugabe. There's the author of a new book, uh, Power Politics in Zimbabwe. He's in Chicago tomorrow, and we'll talk with him. He's originally from Zimbabwe, and we'll talk about the long rule of Robert Mugabe in in Zimbabwe from the 1980s until just late last year. Don't forget, you can listen to Worldview wherever and whenever you want. Subscribe to the Worldview podcast on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can even do it on the content behemoth at our website, at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.